Welcome to The Yoga Show from Yoga Journal, a podcast where we discuss all the creative, practical, and spiritual issues flowing through the yoga community today. I'm your host, Lindsay Tucker, executive editor of Yoga Journal, and in this podcast, we'll be releasing four episode series around the themes of each issue of our magazine. In this series, we're talking about creativity, the subject of our May-June issue. So many of us are longing to live embodied, creative lifestyles. But between drop-offs and meal planning, nine-to-fives and toxic news cycles, how do we make space for finding inspiration and getting into the flow of creating? To find out, we sat down with our May-June cover models, Elizabeth Gilbert, best-selling author of Eat, Pray, Love, and City of Girls, and Jennifer Pasteloff, yoga teacher and best-selling author of On Being Human. After the cover shoot wrapped, what followed behind the scenes was a truly special conversation that we can't wait to share with you. Here we go. So thank you ladies for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. We are here to talk about creativity and um, accessing creativity. What even is creativity? What does it even mean to live mm. a creative What life? is what creativity? Mm. You know? I have a simple definition of creativity. Um, creativity is the relationship between a human being's labor and the mysteries of inspiration. Mm. And inspiration is a mystery. Um, we don't know why, as a species, we respond to it. We seem to be the only species that has ever existed on this planet that wants to engage with this mystery, um, that wants to take something and make it into something else for no particular reason that's pragmatic or necessary for survival. Um, one of the definitions I love of art is making something more beautiful than it needs to be. Mm -hmm. um, we have a lot of needs in order to be safe and um, protected in the world. Uh, the, the example I give of, of, of the kind of universality of that impulse is that my grandparents, who were like the least frou-frou people you could ever possibly imagine, they were Scandinavian dairy farmers in northern Minnesota during the Depression, okay? So like real frivolous people, you know? yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like just real arty-farty people. Like they were like, they were so, they were pleasure-suspicious, puritanical, Lutheran, farmers barely surviving in a very hard landscape. There was no frivolity about them whatsoever. And yet, they made beautiful things that were more beautiful than they needed to. And they never would have called themselves artists. But my grandmother, for instance, she used to make quilts. Um, she used to make patchwork quilts out of leftover scraps of material that no longer had any other purpose. Now, there's a very good pragmatic reason to do that. One is to use up materials because you don't want to waste anything when it's the dust bowl and the depression and you have seven children and no money. Also, it's cold and you need to make a blanket. There was no need for those quilts to be as beautiful as they were. There is no survival purpose that you can point to that says this needs to be as exquisitely designed and beautiful. And she would have said that she had no time for frippery or foolery and yet she would sit there one cold winter's night after another making these quilts that are so beautiful, when I look at them, I want to cry. That is the creative impulse. And if you had asked her why she was doing that, she would not have been able to tell you any more than I can tell you why I started writing when I was a little kid, why I've written the books that I've written, why are we creating, why do we want to do this? The answer is I have no idea, but it seems to be a universal human impulse. And when we don't use it, we get 
sick and suffering? It's such a, it's a hard question for me to put into words because when you asked it, I wanted to like get up and dance or <laughs> I was like, wait, let me do it with my body and movement because um, to me it, it defies uh, definition really. It's about being awake and inspired and all that means to me is being here. You know, like there's this quote, I'm right here, is being here in my body and noticing. Um, and creativity is really being connected to spirit. And I don't mean that in a religious way, but in a way of um, the, the creative spirit, which Wayne Dyer used to talk about all the time and really, really, really moved me. I think of creativity much like I think of poetry, which is my first love with writing. And I think about how intimidated people get by poetry before they realize a poem can be anything, you know, and it's being able to find art, make art anywhere, anyhow, anytime. Because the truth is, it's always within us. And I think that's what it means to be connected to spirit. And now I'll do my creative dance. Because <laughs> <laughs> it just felt very serious all of a sudden. Um, Dancing is made for podcasting. There's an openness and a vulnerability to creativity as well. And I recently posted on Instagram a picture of my stack of journals from this year. And then there were a million questions that, like, sometimes the questions people give me on Instagram make me want to weep when they are like, I just see people looking for, they, we cannot stop looking for the rules. We cannot stop <laughs> wanting, we cannot stop wanting a tyrant to come around and tell us what we have to do in order to be okay. I know. And the questions were like, how do you do it? What's your system? What's your advice for somebody starting? You know, which kind of pens do you use? What kind of, you know, and I was like, oh my God, you guys, it's a blank page. You get to do whatever you want with it. And so I, instead of saying that, I just opened up my journals and took some random pictures and I put them on social media so that people could see what my journal pages look like because it's a combination of shopping lists. And one of them actually prayers, said check to Jen send a check. <laughs> Send a check to Jen Pasteloff. You know, like, and, um, you know, I never got what it, I but. need to do that day. Yeah, I forgot to send that. I sent it to myself instead. Um, you know, letters to myself. It's, it's, it's a mishmash. Drawings, collage, other people's poetry. It's a, it's, it's a real mashup. It's a real gumbo um, on every page. And one of the most interesting things that happened in the thread of that, of that post was that somebody said, I used to keep a journal, but my mother read it when I was 13 and I was, it was so horrifying that I've never done it since. The world is filled with terrible people. And then a whole bunch of people chimed in to say, I agree, the world is filled with terrible people. Oh my my cousin, my cousin read my journal. My ex-husband read my journal. It's not safe. The world is a dangerous place. I just saw this echoing of the world is a dangerous place. And I just, I just said, you guys, I wrote back, Think of my vulnerability. I'm a public figure. My entire life is in these journals. If someone finds one of these, they will sell it on eBay. And they will put like, and I do it. <laughs> and not only do I do it, I have my name, my address, and my phone number written in the front saying, please return this to me if it's found. And maybe if I lose my journal with my actual name, actual phone number, and actual address in it, maybe a kind person will sell it to me. Maybe they'll read it out loud to their friends. Maybe they'll make a podcast out of it. Maybe they'll like sell it to page six. I don't know. Um, but, it's, but if I decide that I'm not going to soothe, comfort, and create because somebody once violated me, um, 
then my life is lived with my heart and my mind behind bars and I will suffer for that much more than I would suffer from the exposure of whatever came out of it. And this is why it's always a risk worth taking to do creative work because you will suffer so much more from not doing it than you will suffer from doing it and not having it go well. Lydia Yoknovich inspires me so much uh, with creativity because for, for me, creativity is also about creating things that weren't there before, breaking the rules. You know, I gave you that card this morning. What did it say? You're a you, rule-breaking beautiful moth? You're, yeah, you're a rule-breaking beautiful moth. But it's this idea of, when I read The Chronology of Water, because oh, I always book. identified as a poet, you know, so when I started writing, and then I stopped. And I thought, I have to be one or the other. And I read Chronology of Water, and I thought, I can make my book be whatever I want it to be. I can write however I want. I can be sort of whatever, self-help be however people listening think of me, and also a poet, and also, and, and it's okay. You know, and it's so, it's, it's about, a lot of it's about letting go of the should, mm -hmm. of how we think it should be, and just letting the, again, that idea of the creative spirit do what it's going to do. That's something that I loved. It really resonated with me about your book when I first read it, was that it just felt like the writing was more free or more fluid than a lot of published things that I had read. It, it, it was just really raw and awesome. I appreciate that because that's the thing about me that oh that stopped me. You know these stories I have, and and some of the you know I'm not organized. I my brain doesn't work that way. And then finally one day I said, well, great. Then that's the book I'm going to write. It took until my 40s, you know, to accept that and go. Well, this is my creative spirit, and this is the way I look at the world. And the way you look at the world is different and beautiful. And how insanely, desperately boring would it be if we all looked at the world the same way? Both books, Big Magic and On Being Human, talk about living beyond fear. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit of, you know, how do you take the first step to saying goodbye to fear and leaving it at the curb? For me, you know, when I wake up, I, I really work on my mind tattoos, or I call it mantra or my prayer. And it's, um, today may I not let fear be the boss of me, or my inner asshole be the boss of me. So, you know, a big thing is acknowledging it and just not letting it um, be so loud, which is fascinating being hard of hearing because it's like the fear and the inner asshole are the loudest in my head. And just, you know, letting it um, coexist without letting it rule my life. Yeah. That's just really more truthful for me. And then, the, the, you know, the words that end my book on and, and the, the most important words are now what? So just one little now what, one little baby now what, so fear won't be running my life. One little now what, or big now what, but Can quite you explain often. the now what? Yeah, um, so I was leading these workshops for years and you know, asking people, what do you want to let go of and what are you afraid of? And people would share and it was beautiful and people would cry and clap. But after a while I had some of the same people come and they'd say the same thing almost like uh, by rote. And I realized there was a missing factor and the missing factor was the now what and I thought well if you're not living the now what not just asking it but living it you're just making a list I mean you might as well just be making New Year's resolutions and I realized that with writing a book how many how many years really I was talking about writing a book and it wasn't until I said now what and I sat my butt down in a chair and I gave myself 20 minutes or whatever it was and I wrote something so now what it's about it's about taking something and making it tangible and specific. It takes it out of what I call like the woo or the ether. 
I go, but, but what does that mean? What is a now what? Oh, okay. So a now what today for not letting fear be the boss of me is I'm going to submit some of my writing to X, Y, or Z. I'm going to make eye contact. I'm going to say hello to a stranger, whatever it is. I like what Jen says about um, coexisting with fear um, because I get the question that you asked often, which is how do we leave fear behind? Um, and here's the great paradox. Um, you leave it behind by bringing it closer. Mm. Um, it's not about the closer I bring my fear into the warmth of the center of myself and into the embrace of my love, the quieter it gets. Mm -hmm. The further that I push it away, the louder it screams. I am really gentle with myself about fear. And, and so I would say the first step for me, if, if I were going to coach somebody on how to get over their fear, would be first of all to drop the idea that you're ever going to get over your fear. Right. Um, and, and then the second thing would be to allow it back into the family from mm -hmm. out in the cold where it has been howling in panic. And to say, you belong with, you belong with all of us. You belong here with inspiration. You belong here with love. You're just another sibling. Mm. And you are loved and you have a home and you're safe. And, um, and so the way I make my fear feel safe is to listen to it. Mm -hmm. And one of the letters that I have people write is, um, when we do the work, is that I have them write a letter to themselves from their fear. And for many people, it's the first time they've ever actually allowed it to speak. And you think that your fear is screaming at you and governing you and bossing you around, but you actually have never just quietly and respectfully let it say what it wants to say. And my experience is almost as with any conflict resolution, if you just quietly, respectfully let it speak, it will, it will say what it wants to say and mm -hmm. then it's done. You know, um, and then you're like, okay, and I listened. I mean, I, I do this exercise constantly with myself. Um, and I listen to it. I let it say what it needs to say. And then I say to it from a higher place, a more loving place, sweetheart, those are all really reasonable things to be afraid of. I absolutely see and acknowledge that you're really scared. Who wouldn't be? Um, who would know how to do this? Who wouldn't be terrified of what you're about to do? Totally get it. And now we're going to do this thing. <laughs> and, and you can totally come along. I know you will. You're welcome to be with us. But your sister creativity and I want to do this project. So we're going to do this project now. And you know, it, and it's a very gentle, it, it just somehow works. I kind of like pull up a chair, let it sit in the chair. My fear sits right next to me with every book that I write. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's never, I don't like to keep it far from me. Where did I hear somebody say that your trauma the definition of trauma is that your trauma is not the wound. Your trauma is the distance between you and the wound. Mm, That's trauma. Like that. And so when you bring the wound in where it can be loved and taken care of, mm. it's much better than pushing it away where it's, it's going to cause you problems. The farther away you get from the wound, the more, the more trouble it's going to bring to you. We'll have more of The Yoga Show in just a moment. But now, a word from our sponsors. little bit about accessing creativity. I'd love to hear a little bit about what you're doing in your workshops to help people access their own and what you do in your personal lives to tap into your own muse. Moving my body as one, you know, just even if it's breathing actually, you know, so now so many people come to my workshops that have never even done yoga. I have people come in wheelchairs, whatever it may be, and I'm like, as long as you're breathing. <laughs> but um, it helps, you know, moving my body. But 
connecting to my body. So I do this thing in my workshops where I have people place their hands on the part of their body they feel the most connected to or disconnected from or subconscious of or you know, maybe they're, they're in their head, their hands are on their head, whatever it is. And then really, as Liz was talking about listening to your fear, I give them two mantras to speak to this place in their body and it's, I am listening and I hear you. Uh, I am listening and I love you. Mm. And really listening to what my body says. And from there, I come up with a mantra or a prayer and I keep that with me throughout the day. One of the other exercises that's my favorite is, um, my, it's in my book, it's called Give Yourself a Bleeping Medal, <laughs> effing medal. And it's really acknowledging yourself for anything and everything, but there's something about that that energizes me, I think all of us, and I could see it. I could see it when people stand up and do it. It could be emotional, powerful, funny, um, but it's, it's like a, it's a confidence booster. And everything's a habit, right? So you, I do this and it's like, oh yeah, I don't suck. Um, sometimes it's just doodling and, and starting to write a poem. It's anything that, that gets me, it's beauty hunting. That's one of the things that I, you know, I, I always joke that I didn't invent beauty hunting, I just bought the URL. But it's to stop, especially when I'm in my head, especially when I feel like I am the most uncreative human in the world. I stop and I go, what are the five most beautiful things right now? And no matter where I am, I stop and look and I try to do that every hour, you know, and the more you begin to look around and pay attention, I mean, that, that's all really being creative is, right? We all have that divine creative spirit. It's paying attention, paying attention. And how do we pay attention? We notice, we beauty hunt. So it, it's really anything that gets me to pay attention. I think a really good way to, to trigger your creativity, which is almost synonymous with curiosity, um, is to hearken back to what were the things that you did as a child mm -hmm. that calmed you down? Um, because before we discovered substances and sex, which once you're in adolescence and your hormones start going and or you're, you're socialized into a world of, of using, you know, using things, most of us as adults find ways to calm ourselves down that are external, um, that, that are either a substance that you take or a person that you consume, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, because that settles you. But before you had access to that, when you were eight years old, when you were nine years old, um, if you're like most humans, you were already anxious, because most of us grew up in imperfect families in an imperfect culture. It's, there's no crime in it, it's just stressful being a person. And children, create things to settle their nerves. You know, um, my sister and I, my sister Catherine Murdoch, who's also a writer, she's a, an acclaimed young adult author who won the Newbery Medal last year. Um, but she and I spent our entire childhood drawing and writing and putting on plays and making up stories. Um, and that's what I do now to mm -hmm. calm myself down. Um, I recently, started drawing again. I haven't drawn anything since I discovered substances and sex when I was a teenager. You know, um, my suggestion to you would be try to remember what you and your friends were doing when you used to get together the summer between third and fourth grade. You know, what were your creative activities that you were making up 
was it playing with dolls? Awesome. Go play with some goddamn dolls. You know, like, and I've, like, in the last year, I've had a tough couple years. My partner died two years ago. I find that I'm, I'm having this creative resurgence because I'm doing all this stuff to make myself feel better. I've danced almost every day since she died. I'm no dancer. I've been drawing every day this year. I've been drawing. I'm not a... I don't define myself as an artist. It's not but my But you're skill. really good. <laughs> but, I'm, but I'm getting better, actually, as I'm doing it. But it settles me, you know? And so even if, like, let's say that your dream is to be a great novelist, but when you were eight, the thing that you did that calmed you down was to color, start coloring. It'll lead you to your novel. Trust me. It's like uh, as soon as your neural pathways just go into that ease, the ideas will have an opportunity to come in. So do another, a different creative thing. Than, than the big dream, if the big dream seems too out of reach. Another, the last thing I'll say is, I, I, I got this from Lydia Yoknovich, but she borrowed it from Linda Barry. I can't remember if we did this in our workshop or not, but Lydia is big on the misfit. So she calls out your inner misfit, I call your inner dork. Get a piece of paper, close your eyes, closed eyes, and with your non-dominant hand, you draw a self-portrait with your eyes closed. And you open it and people laugh and it's adorable. It looks like a three-year-old did it. And then what Lydia suggested is now send that picture a sentence of love. And people can do it in like two seconds. You are enough. You are beautiful. And so I did this actually in my workshop the other day. And people were crying because then I go, go grab your phone and do a selfie. And people are mortified. And I said, do the same thing. And they, it was much harder because it's like they, my theory is you let yourself off the hook by closing your eyes and, and doing it with your non-dominant hand because right away you're like, okay, this is not gonna be great, this is gonna be silly. And so there's this like freedom in that, you know? So I always think, what if we can let ourselves off the hook more? What, what could we create if we can be tender toward ourselves in this way? So often I, I pretend, I think, you know, if I was a two-year-old or I do something in a purposely, quote unquote, bad way to be able to look at it from a different point of view, yeah. I loved that. That was one of the first things we did at your yeah. retreat. It's Linda Barry, but it's, uh, you know, morphed into <laughs> our world it's now. it's almost like little pitiful thing that you feel like you want to nurture it more. Absolutely. <laughs> you can't be mad at that image. Yeah. It, absolutely. It's so innocent. It's yes. so innocent that you're like, oh, little one. Yes, innocent. That's a better You know, which is it. also a really, that's the tone I use when I speak to my fear. It's like, oh, little monkey. Oh, little sweet one, you know, um, I, I, I love the idea that um, can you become the person you needed when you were younger? Um, can you become that toward yourself um, to the part of you who still has that young wound? You know, can you become the really patient, compassionate caregiver? That makes me emotional. <laughs> I know, it's beautiful. And, and it's very easy to do because all you have to do is tap into your longing and say, how do I wish I had been spoken to? And you speak to yourself that way. You know, and you know the answer because you know what you wish. You know what you've longed for. You know what you yeah. didn't get. You know what you were dying to have somebody say. And that's, that's what all you have to say to yourself to, to call It's going to be person. okay. It's going to be okay. I'm not going anywhere. You can't yeah. lose me. I love you. I'm right here. You don't even have to do well or, or, or succeed or feel good for me to love you. There's nothing you could ever do to lose, to lose my love. I'm never not with you. These are the words that I've just spent decades desperately trying to get somebody else to say yeah. to me, <laughs> to, to limited effect. Um, but if I can learn how to say that to myself, then maybe I won't be so tyrannically searching for somebody to say it for me. And you've been writing letters to yourself from 
that self-love yeah spot. yeah that's my that's my um my foremost spiritual practice is that every day i write to myself well i write to love from myself mm -hmm. and then love writes me back in my own hand it's something i've been doing for um 20 years and it's uh, it's something that I discovered when I was in really deep, critical, dangerous depression. And that voice has never altered in 20 years. Um, the same, it, it doesn't evolve. It only says the same things over and over and over again, and I never stop needing to hear it. It just says, I've got you. I love you. I'm right here. I have the words, I'm right here, tat tattooed on my chest at this <laughs> point. I got you. And you've got, I've got you. <laughs> But I've got I'm right here because that's the first thing. I mean, it's ne 20 years. It has never failed. I pick up a notebook in a deep panic attack of anxiety or depression or fear or shame, and I write, I need you, and the next sentence is, I'm right here. Um, no other human can do that for me. P I tire people out. You know, like, I will wake your ass up at 3 o'clock in the morning and demand reassurance until you leave me because it's so annoying. So now I don't have to make someone do that. I can do that myself, and that voice doesn't get tired, and it just says, I'm, I'm right here. I'll sit with you through this. Um, I've, I've always been here. I will always be here. I can see how distressed you are. I'm with you. And it's fascinating because it doesn't, that voice of love I've found, it doesn't have, this is how I've learned how to love other people. It doesn't have answers to what's going to happen or what I should do. So when I ask, what's going to happen and what should I do? It says, I don't know, that's not my department, but whatever you do, I'm here. Whatever you end up doing, I'll be right here. And if it turns out to be a catastrophe, I will be here. And, and I remember one time getting really frustrated with that voice and writing to it and saying, what good are you <laughs> if you can't tell me what to do or how things are going to end? My anxiety is I want you to tell me what to do and I want you to tell me how it's going to turn out. And, it's, and I said, what, what purpose do you have if you can't answer those questions? And love wrote back, without missing a beat, I'm company for you in your darkest hour. That's my purpose. I'm with you so that you're not alone as you go through this. And that's plenty. That's all we need. You know, that's it. We're under this illusion that we need to see what the outcome is going to be, or we need to know what the future is, or we need to know whether it's going to be all right, or we need to know if we're going to someday find that person who's going to love us, or if we're going to get a book published, or if we're ever going to get out of debt, or if we're ever going to get our health back. We have this, this clinging for these answers, but that, in fact, turns out not to be what we need. What we need is company in your darkest hour of just a presence that says, I don't know, but I'm here and I'm not going anywhere, and I'm gonna be right here with you through this. And, and that is truly, I can say that my life has a before and after, from before I found that voice and after I found that voice. Let's take a quick break for these messages. We became friends on social media before we became friends IRL. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we became friends. Um, I admired your work. Like, I think we became admirers. Yeah, I didn't know who you were. I didn't. <laughs> I, I didn't at all. And then, um, so yeah, you followed me. And then I was like, oh, yeah. But no, I know who you were. <laughs> and then, um, but, but what happened was I went to, last year, you gave a talk with Cheryl Strayed at UCLA with like, 
in my imagination, there was like 10,000 people, but there was probably like 1,000 people, I don't know. And out of the blue, somebody asked a question about jealousy or promoting other women. Or, and I don't remember why, but all of a sudden, Cheryl Strayed said my name. And she's like, and then there's like Jen Pastelow. and But it was great, whatever she said. I left my body because I was like, what? What's happening? So I remember what she said, but it was really good. <laughs> and um, But then I left after and we didn't get to meet. And I emailed you and I said, that was so great. Um, and you said, yeah, I'm sorry we didn't get to hug. And I said, me too. And then we became email friends. And then the idea percolated. I said, we should do something. We should sometime. do a thing. Let's make a thing. Make a thing. And you said, yeah, as long as it's free. And the idea was born. I got to tell you a really good tip for how to make a friend <laughs> is, do you want to make something with me? Like, um, that's basically how we've become friends. Yeah. We didn't know each other very well before this, before we created this thing together. And in creating this thing together, we've become real friends. Absolutely. We all know the feeling of being in a room with a bunch of strangers and there's a couple people in that room who you're attracted to. And I don't mean sexually, I mean they just look nice, they look interesting, they look, there's something about the way they spoke that you found interesting and there's something about the way they dress that you find interesting. Even if you have not exchanged a word with this person mm -hmm. during the retreat, I dare you to go up to her and say, this is my email address, this is my phone number, I think you seem really interesting, I would like to meet you. And, and then if to leave it to that person to decide whether she wants to do that and to give her the honor and the power of not having to call you, Absolutely. you know, um, and give, because it just let her decide whether she feels the same way and then let it be that and just know that you did a really brave thing of connecting and reaching out and following, you know, I feel like attraction is so much of what creativity is about. I'm attracted to this idea. I'm interested yeah. in this pursuit. I'm curious about this person. Um, and that sense of reaching out of your terror zone. Um, in order to say, do you want to come to my house and play with my sticker book? Everybody's fear is exactly the same. Everybody's curiosity is different. Um, that's what makes you unique. Your fear is the least interesting thing about you because mm -hmm. it's exactly like mine. Guaranteed. I mean, I've done a million of these workshops and I have people write these letters um, from their fear to themselves where their fear says what it's afraid of. And people are weeping as they're writing this. They're like, it's so vulnerable. My God, I'm like laying out my deepest, most secret terrors. Every single one of those letters is exactly what the fucking think? same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's exactly the same. I'm like, you guys could all switch all your letters with each other. No one's is special. Everyone's afraid of the same thing. Everyone's afraid of dying alone. Everyone's afraid of not having any money. Everyone's afraid right. that their body isn't beautiful, that they're not lovable, that their work isn't original, that something's going to happen to their kids, You know, there's, that the world's going to end. Literally, it's, I could write everybody's fear letter for them. <laughs> because there's just one fear just has, it's like a one note chart. Charlie. Like it's just, it's so, it, and it doesn't mean that it doesn't get to be respected. It just means that it's not interesting. But then when I have people write a letter to themselves from their sense of enchantment, where their sense of enchantment oh, gets to that. tell you, what does it love? Who turns it on? What's excited? When was the last time we spent time together? What are the environments it loves to be in? Those letters just make my, me weep because every single one of them is completely different. So once you're starting to follow your enchantment, which is sort of the same thing as your curiosity, what you're vaguely interested in, you're going to start to lead a life that doesn't look like other people's lives. If you follow your fear, your life will look like a lot of other people's lives um, because it's just going to be a big no that's like, 
my mother read my journal when I was 13, therefore I must never take a creative risk again. No, shut it down. That's the only thing fear ever wants you to do, is to shut the whole operation down. And the only thing that enchantment and creativity want is to open it all up. Oh, I love that. Truly, Lindsay, I just met you today and I guarantee you that you and I have exactly the same fear. <laughs> Guaranteed. Um, like, I could write your fear letter, you could write mine. Um, and, and, and do it. It's important to do it and then be like, okay, sweetheart, we're going to move ahead anyway. <laughs> Liz, that's something that you wrote, too, in, in Big Magic, that you would bring fear on the road trip, but you wouldn't let it drive. Yeah, fear gets to come in the minivan um, <laughs> with the rest of the family because it's part of the family. Um, but here are the things it doesn't get to do. Um, it, here's the things it does get to do. This is the conversation I've had with it. I'm like, family's going on a road trip um, into the unknown, and fear you're coming because apparently you're coming. <laughs> because you always do. So come on in, you're gonna sit in the back, um, but you're here with the family. And what you're allowed to do is what you do best, which is to sit in the back and scream, we're all gonna die. <laughs> um, and you can just do that, because that's what you're really, really good at. So you do that, but what you're not allowed to do is choose the songs on the radio, um, be in control of the snacks, and say where we're going. <laughs> <laughs> what I love about you and what I try to do is to bring a sense of humor into this stuff too because life's hard, man. I think that you nailed it, Jen, when you said about imposter syndrome that the central question is a voice in your head that says, who do you think you are? Mm -hmm. And it's amazing how powerful that voice is because for many of us, all it has to do is say that and you will go back in your hole. You know, it's like, that voice says, who the hell do you think you are? And you go back, you crawl backwards mm -hmm. into your hole and you pull that filthy piece of moldy canvas over your head again and you hide in your dirty hole where you belong. Like, it's so powerful, that question. It's amazing how if you take away tone, um, questions lose their fangs. So if you take away the tone, the sinister sound of that voice and you just write it down on a piece of paper in a neutral, curious way, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Great question. Absolutely. Like, what a great question. And so then I say to it, thank you, that is a great question. Who do I think I am? I think I'm a child of God. I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure. I think I'm a child of God. What do you think you're doing? I think I'm trying to write a book. <laughs> answer it. We never answer it. We just wither. They That's ask the question so and we collapse. Take the question seriously. All it's doing is asking you an innocent question. Who do you think you are? There's a question that my friend Rob Bell loves, or a story he loves to tell from the Talmud, and I can't remember the name of the rabbi, but there was some great wise ancient rabbi who was wandering around the desert one night just in, con in contemplation, and he came upon a fortress, and a soldier at the top of the fortress saw him below and said, who are you and what are you doing? Who are you and what are you doing here? And he called up to the soldier and said, how much money do they pay you to ask that question, those two questions of people? And the soldier said what his salary was. And the rabbi said, I will pay you double that to follow me around for the rest of my life and ask me those two questions every day. Who are you and what are you doing here? Those are really good yeah. questions. You should be asking yourself those questions all the time. So when the imposter syndrome demon comes to you and says, who do you think you are and what do you think you're doing, be like, Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to contemplate that. What 
do I think I am? What do I think I'm doing? And answer it. And my, my experience is that when you really sit in those questions in an earnest way, and you come up with the best possible answer that you can come up with at that time, I think what I'm doing here is that I'm trying to reclaim creativity in my life. I think who I am is somebody who has a lot of curiosity for the world and is trying to engage with it at a certain, I think that's who I am. And the demon says, oh. <laughs> and it walks away. That's all it wanted to know. Who the hell do you think Gosh, you are? And what the that. hell are you doing? Oh, here's your answer. It's just like a toddler, give it an answer. Yeah. You know, it's asking a question, but instead we give it our power instead of giving it an answer. So my suggestion would be actually, instead of thinking of that question as being horrific, think of it as being a really heaven sent question. So what, is there any question you should be basing your life on more than who do you think you are? Yeah. I'd like to know who you think you are. I'd love to know who Jen thinks she is. I think it's, it's fascinating. This last question, this is also from, from a reader on Instagram. She asks, how can we reach people in the throes of grief with reassurance that they are okay? Uh, many people may know that my, uh, the great love of my life, my best friend and then romantic partner, Rhea Elias, died almost two years ago. I don't know when this will be released, but very recently. Um, after an 18-month experience, I won't say battle because she didn't fight it, but an 18-month experience with pancreatic and liver cancer. And she was my person. She was the, she was, and I had had this thought long before she died. I'd had this thought for years. This is the one I cannot lose. Um, everyone else can go. <laughs> you cannot take this one. This is my, this is the one I cannot live without. This is my essential human being. And my first phone call in every moment of celebration, my first phone call in every moment of disaster, the one person I would go to with my intractable dilemmas and say, tell me what to do. And the one person who I knew would always be able to tell me what to do and would still love me if I didn't have the courage to do it. My guide, my comfort, my issues, everything to me. And when she got this diagnosis, I was trying to be very brave and very good and very, you know, a great caregiver and strong and all the things that we want to be. And I had this experience where my friend Ariel, who does body work, was working on me and I completely fell apart under her hands. And I hadn't allowed myself yet to have that happen because I wanted to be strong for Rhea. And I had this total meltdown and I said to her, there are two things that I need to say right now about Rhea's death. And don't you fucking dare contradict me on these or I will do violence to you. Because I cannot bear if you tell me that I'm wrong and I know that I'm right. Number one, Rhea will be gone. People keep saying to me, she'll always be with you in spirit. You'll never lose her. The connection that you two have you will lose her. I was like, that is bullshit. She will be gone. She's going to die and she will be gone and she will never walk in that door again. I will never get to talk to her again. I will never get to hold her in my arms again. She will be gone and don't you dare tell me that I can't lose her. And Ariel said, that is correct. She will be gone. That is what death means. And I said, okay, second thing, <laughs> I will never love anybody the way I loved Rhea ever and don't you fucking dare tell me 
that you don't know or you don't know what the universe has in store for you or you'll, you're plenty of room in your heart to love again. I know this to be true. I will never love anybody or need anybody the way I loved and needed Rhea. And she said, that is also correct. And she will be gone. Why was that comforting? It's the opposite of what the Hallmark card says. Mm -hmm. It's the opposite of the instinct to say, no, that's not true. You don't know that. You cannot lose that person. She'll always be with you. My entire body relaxed when she said, yes, that is correct. That is correct. She will be dead and gone. You will never have her again, and you will never love that way again. And why did that make every synapse in my body relax? Because she was honoring the truth of my pain. And she wasn't saying, you're going to be okay. She was saying, this is going to be horrible. And then I was all right. So my suggestion is if you're with somebody who's in grief, don't patronize or diminish their pain by giving them false comfort. Mm. The only comfort is, I'm here with you. I acknowledge the suffering that you're in. It's deserved. It makes sense. I've got nothing I can give you to take this away, but I'm in the room with you. That's it. It's the same thing love says to me. I can't tell you how this is going to end. I can't make it go any other way, but I'm comfort for you. I'm sitting with you in your darkest hour, and that's it sometimes. Mm -hmm. you know. And I think the instinct to try to comfort often comes from our own anxiety about the discomfort we feel seeing somebody suffering. And that makes us so anxious that we want to take their suffering away so that we feel better. And Ariel had the courage to just witness my suffering and not need it to be anything different than what it was. And in that, she was able to comfort me. It's just, for me, you know, it's about bearing witness. And, you know, the great irony and beauty and gift of my life is my hearing loss because I, you know, really struggle. And without these little babies in my ears, hearing aids, I can't hear. And yet, it's all about listening. And so if you're really, you know, Ariel was, Ariel was yeah. really listening to you. So many people around me, I do all these work with grieving humans, mothers particularly of lost children, and they, all they want is why I got this tattoo is I got you. And whatever that means, sometimes it just means sitting there, sometimes it means handing a tissue, sometimes it means backing away. It's letting them be. I would also say don't ever tell anyone what their grief means. <laughs> don't ever tell anyone um, that, you know, even if you believe it, and even if you've had that experience with yourself where your own grief made you, forged you into a better, stronger, more compassionate person, don't, when someone is in their grief, say, this will forge you into a better, stronger, more compassionate person. You know, don't tell people what the hardest things in their life mean. Um, that's for them to determine. That's between them and their creator, and it's it's... It's of no one's place to do that. And those of us who do a lot of work in the healing fields have a real temptation to do that with people. And it's a kind of tyranny that you have to be really careful about. I mean, the best comfort, the, one of the cleanest, my friend Glennon Doyle, um, the whole time Rhea was dying, she'd sent me a, a message very early on saying to me that, that uh, her sister had, had gone through something very horrible and had it had it had torpedoed her to one of those places that we reach sometimes in our lives where we are beyond comfort. 
and where there's literally nothing that anybody can say that can make it better and where she just needed to be in the howling center of the storm of her pain. And during that time, Glennon, the only way she could love her sister was to sit outside her sister's bedroom. So she said for days, she sat outside of her sister's bedroom and she just sat outside the door so that her sister knew that she was sitting outside the door. That's it, she was keeping vigil. But she didn't go in because her sister couldn't have her in the room, but she didn't leave because she wanted to be close. And she just said, this is the only way I can express my love is to just sit outside your door. And she told me that story very early on. And then she would routinely send me a text in the middle of the night, in the middle of the day saying, I'm sitting outside your door. <laughs> and that's all, it was just this code for, you don't need to respond. You know, I, I think that some of the most important words that you can say to somebody who's grieving are no need to respond. Um, like, I will never send a message to somebody who's in grief that doesn't include those words. No need to respond. You don't need to give me anything back. Um, and, and, sit, and now I've introduced all my friends to sitting outside your door, and that's what we do now. You know, just a little message. I know you're, it's, I know you're going through something hard. I'm sitting outside your door. Just come and open the door if you need me. I want, I want to say one more thing. I want to say my, because I think it ties into the grief question, which is my um, mission statement in life, which is when I get to the end of my life and I ask one final, what have I done? Let my answer be, I have done love. Because I think that's where creativity comes from. You do love very well. Yeah, Thank you. you. That's my favorite thing about you. Thanks. It's my favorite thing about you, too. You yeah. definitely know that it's a verb. For sure. I'm tremendously bad at most things in life, and I'm remarkably good at a few, and that's one of them. <laughs> so who gives a shit about anything <laughs> yeah. else? I mean, <laughs> doing love. Doing love. And that mm. will, that's creativity. This is Jen Pasterlaff, and <laughs> This is Liz Gilbert, and this has been a yoga journal podcast on creativity, love, grief, and show Thanks for listening, and thanks again to Elizabeth and Jennifer for taking the time to sit down with us today. Don't forget to check out Yoga Journal online at yogajournal.com. And for more from Jen and Liz, pick up the issue on Newsstands Now. Continue the conversation at Yoga Show Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Leave a rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow me on Instagram at lins.tucker. That's Lins with a D for behind-the-scenes looks at what's happening at Yoga Journal and beyond. The Yoga Show is produced by me, Lindsay Tucker, and Aviv Rubenstein. Find him on Twitter and Instagram, at Rambo Calrissian. Theme music by Katie Canavan. Get more from her at Accordion to Katie on Instagram. So tune in next time for more from The Yoga Show. Until then, this is Lindsay Tucker. We'll see you soon.